ever be on our lips. And while we sing that, it's a declaration that we're hoping you'll help us make true. And uh, we're looking forward to, to the day where it will be true. Where for eternity we will be with you face to face. And you will call our hearts just by your presence to sing your praise forever. God, what a beautiful picture of our future. So we thank you for that future, God. We thank you for that hope and that reminder this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we took a poll, and it turns out that 50.8% of people wanted to bring the greeting time back. So we're going to go ahead and do that this morning. So any way that's comfortable for you, please turn around and put your hand
Right. Thanks, Ellie. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Okay, so you're mediocre. Great. Okay. <laughs> Off to a good start. Hey, let me just add uh, a little bit of uh, a comment about the women's uh, lunch and the fact that we're getting more and more uh, um, deeper and deeper in, involved with uh, Hope Women's Center of Phoenix. Um, that is a big deal to us, and our uh, relatively new outreach director, Andrea, has been really, really good about getting us more deeply connected with them. So I just would, I would hope that, <laughs> Hope Women's Center, I would hope that you would connect with that next week as well. Uh, I have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of, and I'm just going to read you the statement uh, that the elders prepared. So the elders met this past week. That would be Steve Wheeler, Jim Moreland, Joe Ponce, Nick Oviedo, and myself. Uh, we met last week, it's not our regular meeting time, and we met in order to discuss developments in terms of mass protocol for Redemption Arcadia, and the elders decided unanimously to adjust the masked, mask protocol in a phased approach. And I want you to know the elders took into account many factors in making this decision, including but not limited to the current momentum in our state and, and of our local context, the steady and dramatic reduction of new cases in the state of Arizona and in the city of Phoenix that we've been seeing in the last eight weeks, the approach that other redemption congregations are now taking and many have already taken and the results of those approaches, uh, the rising vaccination rates in both Arizona and Phoenix and then the results of this past Easter Sunday. And given these fact factors, here's how we're gonna change the mask protocols at Redemption Arcadia for the time being, uh, and that would begin today. We are requesting, still, that masks be worn into the service while you're walking around in the sanctuary, like going to the bathroom or whatever, and while singing, but then masks are optional. In other words, you may take off your mask or lower your mask while seated and not singing during the service, so essentially during the, uh, during the sermon or any other thing that's going on where you're seated and, and not uh, speaking or singing yourself, you can pull your mask down or take it off. Uh, and I want you to know the elders are committed to continued monitoring of this issue every day, and we will make adjustments if and when we believe they are warranted. It is quite possible that at some time in the future, maybe not even the not-so-distant future, it'll be time to move to mask optional for the entire service. Several of the redemption congregations have already gone that way. Uh, but we're here in Arcadia, we're not quite there just yet. And thus the phased approach. This is kind of what we're looking at is kind of a phased approach with taking them off during uh, the sermon. And just so that you know we're aware of this, obviously if there's a huge spike again in the future, we may go back to requesting mass at all, at all times. But right now we feel comfortable with going with this uh, adjustment in the protocols in this phased way. So... Uh, having said that, let me pray, and then I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10, and keep your Bibles open to John chapter 10, because that's where we're going to be today, the first 21 verses. Uh, I know the reading was the first six, but we're going to go through 21. So Lord God, this, is, uh, this chapter, chapter 10, is truly a turning point in this gospel, and I just pray uh, that we would handle it well as the communicators of your word, uh, that we would uh, be filled with your spirit, not only in speaking these words, but also in preparation for how we're going to proclaim the gospel and teach these passages. Uh, and God, that you would be honored, your son would be glorified, 
and that we would welcome the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and direct us, to give us your wisdom, to give us your hope and your comfort as well. Help us with this now, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through John, and today Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. It's the fourth of his seven I am statements. It's interesting that the shepherd one is right in the middle. Some people make a big deal out of that. And it's really important also to understand the connection between chapter 10 and what we did in chapter 9, which was where Jesus healed the man born blind. It's, it's important to see that connection. We've had a week off from this, and there's a chapter break, so that tends to make us disassociate those two chapters. But really, this is just a continuing of this very tense conversation that Jesus was having having with the professional religious people at the end of chapter 9 after he healed uh, the man born uh, blind. And so as he continues this tense conversation, Jesus decides he's just going to go right at these religious leaders with a laser-like focus in front of all the people with an extended illustration to try to make his point. He calls out these professional religious people, here you go, He calls out the supposed shepherds of God's people by using this shepherd imagery here. And that shepherd imagery will continue a little bit into next week, too. So uh, it's it's very prominent here, but we'll see it again next week. So we're just going to walk through this verse by verse, and I will be the first to admit there is a ton in these 21 verses. So if you're a caffeine person and you have some caffeine, please take a sip. It will help you get through this, I think. But more than that, ask the Holy Spirit to help direct your focus on, on this passage. So starting with verse 1. I know some of you are, if you're only going to go one verse at a time, this is going to take a while. Well, we'll get there. Don't worry. So verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. This verse sets the tone for the rest of the passage, and in many ways it says everything that needs to be said. Uh, We need to understand some contextual and historical items here. For instance, a typical Middle Eastern sheep pen or sheepfold had only one way to get in. There was one gate, one door, one entrance, and that way was always, always guarded and watched over by the shepherd of the sheep. The rest of the sheep pen would be surrounded by some geographical, geological, or physical boundary of some sort. In other words, uh, sheep pens or sheep folds were in a cave, or they were against the side of a cliff, or they backed up to a lake, or they backed up to a barn, or somebody built a fence. And there was one way in or out. Furthermore, we need to understand that everybody in their context knew what a good shepherd was like. A good shepherd always protects the sheep at all costs, cares for the sheep at all times, provides for the sheep's needs, not their wants and felt needs and desires, provides for what the sheep truly need. A good shepherd knows what a sheep truly needs. He also develops a relationship with the sheep, and he shows grace to the sheep because the sheep are dull and they constantly find themselves in trouble. Uh, One of the other pastors at Redemption came across this picture. This is a recent picture of a sheep that was found. It had that's a sheep. Okay, that's not a picture from Jurassic Park. All right, Uh, this is a sheep that in Australia had wandered away from its shepherd for more than a year. This is what happens to sheep that don't have a good shepherd or that wander away from their shepherd, and the shepherd doesn't uh, bring them back. I just 
I don't know. I don't know how you even exist like that, but that's what happened because they're not that bright, okay? They need a smart, loving, caring, connected shepherd with them. Also, we need to understand that this shepherd imagery was constantly used in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with his people, Israel, as well as the type of relationship that Israel's shepherds were supposed to have with the people. In other words, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, and the Levites, and the scribes, and the lawyers, all the professional religious people. So the shepherd would only ever enter the sheep pen by the one and only entrance or gate or door, and those who are not true shepherds, those who maybe call themselves shepherds, but are actually shepherding for themselves, really, and not for the sheep, it's just a gig for them. In other words, false shepherds, they enter the sheepfold through deception and unauthorized entrances. So there are three things happening here. Number one, Jesus is now pointing back to what just happened in chapter 9 and the religious leader's reaction to the healing of the blind man and demonstrating that their reaction shows that they're not true shepherds of the people. Their actions, the perps, showed that they didn't care about the man's recovery and his ability to now live and worship in a way that was considered clean and whole. They only, carried, they only cared that their power and status were threatened by all of this. Second of all, Jesus is calling to mind here, specifically Ezekiel chapter 34, where God calls out the shepherds of Israel, the perps, for being the worst kind of shepherds because they did not really care for the people, they did not really listen to God, and they were fleeing in the face of any danger, leaving the people to fend for themselves. And then number three, the imagery referenced here, we need to understand that too. A good shepherd always, always, the good shepherd always slept across the entrance to the sheepfold so that any danger coming at them would have to go through or over the shepherd first. In other words, the shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. And Israel's shepherds had quit doing that centuries earlier. But Jesus, he lays down his life for the sheep. So this entire Jesus treatise that we look at today pretty much sets the Pharisees and other religious leaders' hair on fire. So look at verses 2 through 6. Jesus continues, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice." A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So there are generally two ways to shepherd a flock. Two ways. You can shepherd a flock from behind by pushing and agitating and whipping. It's kind of a legalistic way of shepherding. Lots of rules and punishment. Or you can shepherd from in front of the sheep, calling the sheep, leading the sheep, knowing the sheep, and exhorting the sheep, and going before the sheep in case of danger. Kind of a grace-filled way of shepherding the flock. So it's relational and it's connected. And Jesus is the latter. Jesus is the type of shepherd who calls and leads He's knowing us, he's loving us, he's exhorting us, he's correcting us, he's connected to us, and he's going before us. Uh, don't turn there, 
And I'm sorry I have this on my phone, but I want to read it. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, the Lord's reward is with him, and his recompense before him. The Lord will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's the picture of the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. Anyway, it is through this second way, this this lead from in front way, that the sheep learn the voice of the shepherd. We're, We're called by Jesus. We're loved by Jesus. We're led by Jesus. We're known by Jesus. We're exhorted by Jesus. We're corrected by Jesus. And we're connected to Jesus. Hopefully we're connected to him. And Jesus goes before us. We should therefore know his voice and be able to readily and easily identify false voices. In other words, false doctrines and false teachers. In other words, wolves and liars and deceivers and thieves and robbers. We should be able to easily identify them. And how do we identify these false shepherds? How do we do that? By studying the false teachers and studying their doctrine and, and, and what they teach. No, 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 no. You don't study them. That's not how you do it. That's an endless pursuit and it'll never work. We do this by knowing Jesus, connecting to Jesus, and knowing his word. That's how you can identify the false shepherds, by knowing Jesus. If we know Jesus and his word, it's easy to spot the phonies. It's easy to spot the wolves and the antichrists. John calls these false shepherds antichrists in in his first letter to the church, 1 John. So, know the voice of Jesus. How? Know Jesus. Slather yourself in his word and in his faith community. I'm married to Jackie. And one of the things that makes our marriage good is that we know each other's voices, tones, and pitches. We know each other's attitudes and moods. We know each other's stresses and anxieties. We know each other's postures and preferences And we know them because we deeply spend time with each other. We know these things because Jackie and I are connected. We are attached. It's that biblical picture of the two becoming one. And our marriage would be shaky if that were not true. Jesus is our groom. We, the church, are his bride. Know the groom. Spend time deeply with Jesus and his people. He already knows us, his bride, better than any of us could ever imagine. So here, what Jesus is doing is he's calling out the perps, certainly the professional religious people. They have not pressed into the people as they should. Mostly, these professional religious people just protect their power and their status. They're in it for the money. They behave like hired hands, just waiting on their paycheck, but they're not committed or connected. The the professional religious leaders of Israel are chickens at breakfast time, not pigs. At breakfast, the chicken participates, but the pig is committed. You understand what I'm saying there, right? Okay? But also, but also, Jesus here is not only calling out the perps, but he's calling out all of the people because he's saying to them, listen, if you're not being well led, it's still up to you to make sure that you're pursuing God and that you find the right kind of leaders in your life if you need, or you become leaders yourself. 
It's not the professional religious person's fault if you're not following God. You need to still get connected and committed to God. So this is about all of God's people. Look at verses 7 through 11. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus not only saying I'm the good shepherd, he also says I'm the door of the sheep. Understand, Jesus is making it absolutely crystal clear, just as he does in John 14, verse 6, that it is only through him that salvation comes. Many claiming Messiahship had come before him, and they were false teachers, they were liars, thieves, and salvation was not found in them. It's the same with the religious professionals and all of their rules and regulations designed to make them appear virtuous, but they are in fact Dark and dead where it counts on the inside. Just to remind you, and we'll get there eventually, John 14, 6, Jesus says the same thing, but more directly. He says, I am the way. There is no other way. I am the truth. There is no other truth. Notice the definite article. I am the life. There is no other life. And just to make sure we get it, he repeats it differently. He says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Israel's shepherds are like our world and culture today. They are other wares. They are wrong wares. Jesus has exclusive rights to grant entry into the kingdom of God. He's the only way. And entering the kingdom of God bestows two great benefits, salvation and sustenance. And that's a picture of the abundant life. The abundant life is a comprehensive 720-degree understanding of life. In other words, not just horizontally, but also vertically. It's, it's a life of fullness all the way around. And there's that shirt again, all of life is all for Jesus. Now, it's not a life of ease, necessarily. It's not a life of comfort, necessarily. But it is a life of hope. It's a life of joy. It's a life of wisdom, a life of contentment. It should be a life of relationship and purpose and connection, and it should be a life of blessing, not only receiving the blessing of God, but also passing along the blessing of God. We don't get to just be like the Dead Sea, just receiving the blessing, but never passing it on. We also want to pass it on His way. Jesus' way is the better way. We even sing that song, Your Way is Better, Jesus. And and so I'm going to talk more about the abundant life at the end of this as well. But then verses 10 and 11, again, These are critical. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So these verses clearly, again, show the stark difference between Jesus and other authorities, or what you might call authorities. So here you go. The world's authorities are constantly vying for our attention, our affection, and our worship with things like cultural relevancy, gender and sexual revolution, philosophical and political wokeness, digital and virtual reality affirmation. And this list could go on and on and on. We could throw in the issue of power, the issue of money, the issue of education, fame, 
access and convenience, the list goes on and on. Here's what we need to understand. There are convincing voices out there, but no good voices. Jesus has the only good voice. And all of these things strive to be our authority. They strive to be our God. What we serve and worship, they strive for that. They strive to be the things that we put our faith and trust in. But these authorities cannot deliver what they promise. They promise the world. Now, I would say, ironically, they promise the world, and ironically, actually, they do pretty much deliver what the world has. Brokenness, discouragement, unmet expectations, pain, frustration, and emptiness. Tom, our founding pastor, when he was at uh, Caldwell Banker, they were passing around a card for somebody who was getting married, a congratulations card. And people were writing in the card. And he noticed, when he got the card, he started reading what other people had written. And somebody had written in the card, um, congratulations on your marriage. I wish you all that the world has to offer you. And Tom immediately went, if you know Tom, he immediately went to plague, war, violence. (laughs) That's a strange wish for somebody who's getting married, okay? But that's what the world pretty much delivers. That's why we need Jesus. There is one entrance to the kingdom of God, one way to the abundant life, and it's Jesus because he's the good shepherd. By the way, once again, by saying, I am the good shepherd, the people there clearly understood that Jesus is saying, I'm God, because the good shepherd from the Old Testament was Yahweh. So every one of these I am claims, all seven of them, we need to understand Jesus is clearly saying to the people, I'm God. And then verses 12 through 18, and again, notice the I lay my life down language. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares cares nothing for the sheep. He's talking about Israel's religious leaders here. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." So here in in verses 12 through 13, Jesus clearly tells the Pharisees that they are nothing more than hired hands, selfishly looking out for themselves and interested and not interested in true shepherding. And it's getting pretty tense with these guys at this point, and it gets really tense next week. But then verse 16 busts open all kinds of stuff. Let me reread verse 16. Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there is one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is saying there's an entire population of sheep who are not even Jewish. And he's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about those awful people that the Jews believe are not even dignified as human beings, let alone people that God would love. But even even more, this is even more than just a difference in ethnicity or race or however you want to describe it. Jesus is saying he will save and bring into the kingdom of God people who are different than Jews. Jesus is saying he will save and bring into the kingdom of God, he will bring into the church people who are different from us, different from me. Jesus says he will save people that we wouldn't necessarily want to hang around with. 
because they look different and they dress different and they act different and they speak different. They have different preferences and different opinions. They have different likes and dislikes and different attitudes and different cultural mores. And they're going to vote for the wrong people and they will have hobbies that don't make any sense. And these people will be messy and awkward and they might even gain positions of leadership. Of course, I hope you understand that to them, we are messy and awkward. We are messy and awkward to them. And so understand the privilege and the blessing that they would even come around because they're feeling the same thing we're feeling, maybe even worse, because there's generally more of us in any given situation. We need to understand that. And when the church of Jesus presses against those, those false gods, it becomes a problem. Why are we so determined to homogenize the church when clearly Jesus has a different vision for his kingdom? Why? Why do we want to homogenize church? I'll, I'm glad you asked. I'll answer that question right here. The reason we want to homogenize the church, in other words, make the church into something that meets all of our preferences and never makes us uncomfortable, is because we worship at the altars of God, uh, altars of comfort, convenience, pride, arrogance, and consumerism, and these are our false gods. And we need to press against these false gods. The Bible is filled with teaching about idolatry. And I know, that's for all those other people. No, us. Every one of us has false gods. I've mentioned this before. Uh, the only homework I give pre-marrieds, the only exercise I make them do, is I give them a little sheet that defines what an idol is, what a false god is, and then I tell them to go away and write down what their false gods are. Make them self-aware of the things that they are willing to worship instead of God, that get in the way of God, but also those things, those false gods, you know what those false gods also do? They also get in the way of our relationships horizontally as well. Most of, of the conflict that occurs in churches between people who are supposed to be united in Christ are because of our false gods getting in the way, because we've lost sight of who Jesus really is and the unity that we have in him. And so when the church presses against these false gods, people get mad and leave because they love their gods more than they love God. You and I vigorously protect our false gods. And if our church doesn't get in line with this vision of false gods of ours, off we go. And you know what? We'll end up looking like that sheep that we showed you earlier. But Jesus calls us to something better. This verse is Jesus' testimony as to the variety of people within God's community and the unity that variety has in only one place, and that's in Jesus himself. And then Jesus proclaims in verses 17 and 18 that he will lay down his life for these people, that all could be a part of his church and the kingdom of God if they would just come to him. Jesus gives his life for this vision. He gives his life for the church. He gives his life for us Think about, think about this. The good shepherd, Jesus, allows the sheep, us, close enough that we can bite and stab him, and what he does in response is bleed forgiveness. That's who Jesus is, and that's amazing. And then verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. A division. 
Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Isn't it funny how they just keep upping the charges against Jesus? Now he has a demon and is insane. Not just a demon or insane, he's both, okay? Others said, these, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Ooh, there's the division, okay? So I want you to think about this language we heard in verses 3 and verse 16, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. The sheep listen to the shepherd's voice. This is actually a picture of division. We need to understand that. This is a picture of division. We hate to think of Jesus that way, but this is a statement of division, and Jesus is comfortable with that. Remember, he's comfortable with disappointing people. He is comfortable with contradicting people's personal assumed truths and preferences. I heard this old saying again this last week. If Jesus really loved me, he would keep my commands. So how is this an image of division? Again, you have to understand the history and the context. In this cultural context, very often, one sheep pen would be the only one available in a particular area, and so it would get filled at night with more than one flock of sheep, more, with more than one shepherd. They'd all go into this sheep pen. And this way, they could all help protect the sheep. But then the sheep were all mixed in together. How do you separate the sheep in the morning when it's time to move out? Well, all the sheep know the specific voices of their shepherds. They know the voice of the shepherd. So in the morning, the shepherds would call to their sheep, and only their sheep would come to them. It's that simple. They would be divided based on the voice of the shepherd. you got to see where I'm going with this. Here you go. That's just too arrogant. you got to see where Jesus went with this. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They come when they're called and they listen to my voice. They heed my message and my teaching. Jesus' voice is a loving and truthful voice. But it is also a voice that divides believers from unbelievers. So we have to ask this question today. Whose voice do you go to? Whose voice do you listen to? You're going to pick a voice. Well, I pick my own voice. Well, you picked a voice. I know. I get it. I'm my own boss. I'm my own authority. Okay, you picked a voice. Okay? Your voice is really tricky, though. Let me just tell you that. Your voice is very tricky. Gets you into a lot of trouble. Gets me into a lot of trouble. Not your voice. My voice gets me into trouble. Your voice can get me into trouble, too. But you're going to pick a sheepfold. You're going to pick a voice. You're going to pick who or what to follow. You're going to pick something. Jesus is calling. Will you hear and listen to his voice? Will he be your shepherd? Because he's the only shepherd who truly has abundant life. So now we've circled back to verse 10, abundant life. So how is that? That abundant life, how then? How? I hear all about this abundant life. How? I'm going to finish here, but I, I want you again. If you've drifted in the last few minutes, just refocus. Redouble your efforts for the next five or six minutes, because this is critical. This is important. In this gospel so far, we've been in here, I don't know, 30 weeks now in the gospel of John so far. And every week we have emphasized believe, believe. You've got to believe in Jesus, because that's John's stated purpose in, in chapter 20. Jesus did many other things, but these things I've written so that you might believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, 
the Savior. And that's good. Believing is good. It's essential. But there's more. And this passage takes us there. You understand, believing is mostly a cognitive action. It's a mental assent. And it's good and it's necessary. We have to believe. But the Christian life of abundance is really more of an affective assent, assent as opposed to cognitive. It's an affective assent. It's, it's driven by relationship and con- connectedness and attachment. Attachment. We can believe, but at the same time not be connected or attached, and that's a problem. I'll use my marriage with Jackie again to try to illustrate this. I know Jackie's my wife. I know. And I believe she's my wife. I have a marriage license or certificate that proves it. She signed it. I saw her sign it. Okay? I believe it. Okay? But my marriage demands, demands that I know more than just that she's my wife. It demands that I know her. It demands that I am connected to her, that I am attached to her. Even when we're physically apart, it demands that my heart is longing for her and my heart feels incomplete without her, which it does. That's what it means to have great affection, to have great affect for her. If that weren't true, our marriage is nothing more than a shell. That's it. There are many words in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are translated love. There's one in the Old Testament, it's called hesed. Uh, We most often uh, translate it as loving kindness. But there are also several places in the Old Testament where the word hesed is specifically used to mean to attach to something or to connect to something or to glom on to something. And then in the New Testament, lots of words for love. You know the word agape, right? We've all heard that Christian word agape, right? We say that's unconditional love. Yes, it is. It's unconditional, selfless, compassionate love. Compassionate love meanings with feeling, same feeling. So agape love is also a love that defines connection and attachment and subsuming into each other. Hesed and Hesed and agape, these are critical words to understand. And not only do these words describe our connection and attachment vertically to God, but also our connection and attachment that we're supposed to have horizontally with each other. God has an agape love for me, a selfless, unconditional, compassionate love for me. Therefore, his character... I'm not worthy of it. It's unconditional. His character has been given to me by the crucifixion of Christ. I am now supposed to have that agape, unconditional, compassionate, connected love for others. And certainly in my particular case, it starts with my marriage. Maybe you're not married, but it starts with other people in your faith community, but it also extends to traffic where you don't know the people that you're honking at. That's what we're called to. I know it's really hard, but this is the kind of love that the Bible talks about that we're supposed to have because God has that for us, first and foremost, before we ever did a thing. And I talk a lot, you've heard me talk about this, a lot about how 
important it is that we submit our will to God's will and God's wisdom. The Bible teaches that over and over and over. Submit your will to God's will. Submit your foolishness to God's wisdom and take on his wisdom. But as I've recently studied the principle of submitting our will to his, I believe I've discovered that our language in English isn't quite right. It's more than just submitting our will to him. It's subsuming our will into his and his into us because of hesed and agape. In that regard, we see the biblical theme of the two truly becoming one. Now, please, please be really careful here. I want to make sure you understand what I am not saying. I'm not saying that we become God. I'm not Shirley MacLaine, like three of you got that reference. I'm not saying that, okay? We don't become God. But more than believing, we attach ourselves to and connect with God. Listen to verses 14 and 15 again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one in the same essence. Uh, they're, they're all God. One God, three separate manifestations of the person of God, but they're all God. They're all the same essence, and they know each other in a connected and attached way. They love each other in a connected and attached way, and now he says this about a sheep, too. So we see this language in this passage here. I don't have an abundant marriage with Jackie by just believing she's my wife. But I can have an abundant marriage by connecting to her and attaching myself to her and knowing her. Know Jesus. Connect to Jesus. Attach yourself to Jesus and connect to his people. Attach yourself to his word and love him as he has loved us. That's the abundant life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this teaching and the truth of the gospel. And God, we don't always like it, but we thank you for the tension that your word brings. We thank you for the, for the truth that Jesus teaches. And we thank you that when the Holy Spirit fills us and leads us and guides us and directs us, we thank you that he calls us to things that we wouldn't call ourselves to. But he calls us to these things because they are the things of God. And so I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have time to take communion and sing one last song. Again, if you um, did not get a communion kit when you walked in, they're in the lobby, and now would be a great time to go ahead and grab one. Uh, still taking communion individually, but it's important that we do this every week when we gather because we're proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes again. We're called to do that to proclaim that death on our behalf so that he gives us his righteousness and we get to give him our sin. We proclaim that death, which accomplishes that. And then when he comes again, it's that new life that we're going to have with him in heaven, in, new, in the new Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing. Um, when we take these elements, we demonstrate Two things, we're confessing that we need Jesus and we're celebrating that we have him. The, the wafer or the cracker or the bread being his body and the wine or the juice being the blood of the new covenant. We do that together 
as believers. Let's do that now. As we respond to the message and as we take communion together, um, I'm just going to sing a couple of phrases over our congregation as a prayer, as an encouragement to us as we take communion, and that way you can focus on that time with the Lord. And then we'll invite you to sing with us in the next song after this. A shepherd lead us Much we need thy tender care In thy pleasant pastures feed us For our use thy folds prepare Blessed Jesus Jesus, Thou hast bought us, Thine we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us, Thine we Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us, Thine we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us,
Well, let that be our benediction and our sending prayer. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you next week. Go live all of life, all for Jesus.